On the show today, Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. And with us is also my co-host, Rainer Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. So today we'll talk about the right kind of wrong. Amy, a warm, warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. So grateful that you're here, really. Let's move into discussing failures and mistakes. Why does it matter that we learn to navigate failure well? I think it matters because we live in a time of increasing uncertainty and interdependence. And if you pause, either one of those factors creates the inevitability of some failures along the way. And so we have to learn to manage them, navigate them. And probably the quickest way to say this is we have to learn to do well at preventing preventable failures and then also to do well at embracing non-preventable failures for the lessons that they bring. And the difference between mistakes and failures. I'm surprised in a funny way how interchangeably those terms are used. So I will define a failure as anything undesired. You wanted that recipe to turn out well and it didn't. You wanted the project to succeed, you wanted the customer to buy, and it failed. So it's an outcome that deviates from what you wanted. Some failures are caused by error, but many failures are not. Many are caused by uncertainty or an inability to predict the future in some way, which is uncertainty. Now, a mistake or an error, which are essentially synonymous, you can't have a mistake unless there was a right way to do something. So when we say there was a mistake, we are implying that there was already a formula, a process, a procedure that exists to produce an outcome that we're seeking, you know, a recipe of some kind. And a mistake happens when, for whatever reason, we don't yet know what reason, there's been a deviation from a known process. The only thing I can say for sure about a mistake is it wasn't deliberate. As soon as it's deliberate, then it's something else, right? It's a violation, sabotage. But a mistake is something goes wrong that could have gone right. A failure can really be strategic as well in the sense that it is an opportunity for progress and an innovation. Absolutely. In fact, I would venture to say you cannot get innovation without some failures along the way. So failure is a more encompassing category, right? Because a mistake is a failure, but a failure is not a mistake. Any mistake is a failure, although some of them are trivial. Some of them are so unimportant, we don't even pause. You trip on the sidewalk, it's a little mistake, but it doesn't really create any damage. So we don't pause to think about it. But a failure is quite an encompassing term. And for that reason, I describe three kinds of failure, basic, complex, and intelligent. And the intelligent failures are the ones that are absolutely essential for innovation, for progress in new territory. And they're the ones that we truly have to train ourselves emotionally to embrace, to welcome those intelligent failures as useful discoveries, as useful information that help us make progress toward valued goals. Amy, it's fantastic to have you here on the podcast, and I truly admire all of your work. So I've been thinking a lot about mistakes and failures. Some mistakes actually can create successes, especially when you do new things and you do something that wasn't intended, and it turns out that it was actually good. And what Summa has been doing, I mean, everything in our strategy around investing to solve global challenges and trying to figure out new ways of doing things, it's an uncharted territory. So we have done a lot of mistakes. 
and we also did a lot of failures. So, and we have tried to develop an organization where that truly are able to deal with both mistakes and failures. And I, I guess a lot of your work has really been on psychological safety and how to have an organization that can thrive even if you do mistakes and where you can fail fast. So you move on and you correct. It's a really important point. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that sometimes mistakes do produce, you know, happy surprises. And those, we want to be very, you know, aware of those and open to those. I think that there are still the minority. I mean, to be honest, right, most mistakes don't produce value, but then there's a rare mistake that does. So we have to be super open and aware and attentive to that possibility so we don't miss it. You know, many popular foods today were the result of mistakes, apparently chocolate chip cookies and potato chips and oyster sauce, right? So somebody made a mistake, they burned the sauce and they tasted it and realized, oh my gosh, this is delicious and a business is born. So those things do happen, but they're few and far between. But the most important thing to say about this is that if you don't have a culture that welcomes the truth, that embraces people for telling you what's really happening, you will not be in a good position to ever get the value from those rare mistakes that turn into fantastic new discoveries or from the failures that turn into fantastic new discoveries. So it's absolutely critical and you're right to label it psychological safety. I would too. Psychological safety describes an environment where people feel absolutely unconflicted about telling the truth right? Where they just know that as hard as it might feel right now, speaking up openly, honestly, quickly is welcomed and valued around here. That's what we do. And that's the way you get to turn mistakes and failures into value going forward. And what about feedback? Because this truth, whatever is the truth, right? How do we communicate with each other in a truthful way, in a constructive way? It's such a skillful thing. I think we underestimate the degree to which communicating with each other and giving feedback, the bad, the good, in a truthful and helpful way is a really skilled endeavor, right? So most of us have not been trained in those skills. We've been trained inadvertently in the skills of face saving and being nice and withholding what we really think. And we haven't been trained in the skills of directness. And what do I mean by that? Directness doesn't mean, oh, I think you're a jerk, right? That's not helpful. And importantly, it's not data driven, right? So the skill part is to walk down what my advisor, Chris Arger, has called the ladder of inference. To go, Our brains are very quick to go from directly observable data to conclusions, to abstractions, where I say, she's not a team player, right? or he's not performing well. Those are high-level abstract conclusions. What I really want to say is, I want to be able to identify the behavior the actual activities that led me to my conclusion and recognize the possibility that my conclusion might be wrong or at least might be limited. It's my conclusion. It's my view. And it's a valid view, but it's necessarily incomplete. So in order to have these kinds of conversations effectively in ways that help each other, and that is the goal, we do have to learn some of those skills. And the skills have to do with, as I said, walking down the ladder of inference, trying to recreate as best we can, directly observable data, behaviors that led us to our conclusions, and also learning the skill of effective inquiry, right? Of not just coming at everything with, well, 
this is my truth and therefore you must listen to it, but rather here's how I see it. What am I missing? Right. Learning how to be curious. The chances are very good that that behavior that someone else is engaging in that you don't think is effective makes sense to them. So it's your job to find out why it makes sense to them and vice versa. We're not automatically good at this. We have to learn these interpersonal skills to learn together. One question on that. It's very interesting what you're saying. If I think about Summa and the culture that we have built, and I would say that we have fairly high psychological safety, and and we have to have that to be innovative and, and moving in the direction we have. If I describe the team, I mean, we're, uh, we do mistakes and I don't think anyone is afraid of doing them. We're quite inclusive. We're very team-based. We are quite a diverse organization. We are team-based and people are open to mistakes and we try to course correct and figure out. But you spoke about speaking directly to each other. And I think one thing that I feel that we aren't good enough at is that we're too kind of an organization. We don't bring up the tough parts, the tough discussions which I think lowers in psychological safety in a bit because you go around wondering what these people thinking about me or what I'm doing that they're not telling me. So how do you deal with that? This is really hard, right? So I think number one is to applaud the aspiration that you have, right? To have the right kind of culture that is learning oriented and innovative and allows people both to feel comfortable taking risks, you know, able to take risks, but also also willing to hear back from those risks, you know, to learn when something that they had good intentions. I think we can assume everybody at Suma has good intentions, but to learn when something they did or tried didn't work. We have to reframe that both individually and collectively as a gift, right? Because it is. I mean, it doesn't always feel that way at the time, but it is a gift when people get honest feedback that helps them learn and grow. I sometimes think one of the keys to doing this right and doing this well is to be discerning, right? So when you say mistakes are okay, and that's part of our, I suspect that it's not okay to keep making the same mistake. So long as you're making interesting mistakes, okay, right? As long as you're making new mistakes, but when and if someone is making the same mistake over and over and over again, I don't think you welcome that. In all honesty, you won't be welcoming that. So therefore, the more discerning we can be about why we tolerate mistakes, best answer is to err as human. You know, humans will make mistakes, full stop. That won't end. But the important thing is to learn from them, right? And learning from them, in, by and large, means not making the same ones over and over. That's part of it. Now, this issue of, I think you're absolutely right, and it's a very subtle point that in fact by being overly kind or nice you can reduce psychological safety rather than increase it and why is that well that is because most people intuitively understand that only good news is not good news right they intuitively understand because they feel it themselves right that it's not that everything they're doing is perfect it's that the things that are imperfect are not being talked about directly but the chances are reasonably good that they're being talked about in other rooms, right? And so that's what starts to create the anxiety, right? Because I know, you know, or at least I have that feeling that someone might be saying something unkind behind my back because they never say it directly. And yet I know there are ways I'm falling short. 
right? So ironically, in this desire to be kind and create psychological safety, we are at risk of inadvertently lowering it. And so maybe the best way to think about this is that you need and want psychological safety, but you also need and want the skills to handle the challenges that come up. That's a given. There will be challenges to handle those skillfully, directly, and know that you're going to make mistakes along the way interpersonally too. That's good input. And, and we have really focused on trying to create a radical, honest organization, but I find it very, very difficult. And I come to believe that, you know, not even myself are radically honest on certain issues. So it's, it's a struggle. It is a struggle. And nor am I, right? It's I can write about these things and talk about these things, but in real practice, I fall short on a daily basis. And that's because it's hard. And it's hard for reasons that have to do with how our brains work and how we react to threat, and also how we're socialized. And all of those things made sense and helped us achieve our goals thousands of years ago. In the modern world, right in the, in the information era, in the digital era, they no longer make the same kind of sense from a survival perspective as they once did. So, you know, that means that as adults, we have to keep learning, right? We have to just keep trying to choose learning over knowing when our brains automatically choose knowing over learning because it feels good to know, to be an expert, to believe I've sized up the situation accurately rather than to say, okay, I've sized up part of it, but now I'm really curious about what I'm missing. So that's a kind of a choice I think we have to make actively because it won't happen spontaneously. Do you have any sort of organizational practices that you would recommend in order to increase psychological safety in an organization? Yes. And funnily enough, it starts with just calling attention to aspects of reality that we all intellectually know are there, but emotionally don't recognize. And by that, I'll go back to where we started, which is uncertainty and interdependence. Neither have ever been higher than they are today. But when you, for example, when you as a leader or any project leader or any project member for that matter, call attention to that explicitly or to novelty, like we've never done a project like this before, but just name it, right? Name the scientific reality that we are standing in new territory where we don't have a crystal ball and where as we do this, there will be things that work out great and things that don't. The sooner we hear about them, the better, right? So in other words, I'm calling attention to something that's intellectually obvious, but emotionally, we usually push out or don't think about very much. And by doing so, I'm cementing that rationale for why your voice, others' voice, everybody's input is needed, you know, could be mission critical at just that right moment, you know, or someone speaks up with a crazy idea or someone offers a dissenting view. So that's stage setting. I'm saying you've got to set the stage, even if you think, oh, everybody knows that already. Why should I say it? I interviewed a pilot recently who said every new crew, every new flight crew, every new flight that he captains, he will start by saying, and I quote, I've never had a perfect flight. What's he doing? He's stage setting. He's saying, because of the hierarchy, we are at risk of you not saying when I do something wrong. And that's not good, right? If we want excellence, and we do then you need to be fully empowered. And the best reason I can give you right now that you're fully empowered to speak up is because it turns out I'm a fallible human being, always have been, right? So different settings will require different words to stage set. But I think number one task is stage setting. 
And number two is easy and quick to describe, which is just inviting input. That means inquiry. That means in a simple phrase, ask good questions early and often. And the funny thing about psychological safety is if I feel reluctant to speak up, it's so easy to stay quiet. So I will. But when Vesna asked me a direct question, suddenly it feels incredibly awkward to stay silent. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to. Right? So when you think about the tool of a good question, it's so powerful because you're essentially forcing the other person. Now, you can't force honesty, but I think you get honesty when you show that you really mean it, right? You're really interested in what they have to say. And then the final thing is, is continuously monitoring the responses. Let's say you are in, as you describe, an organization where people tend to be quite kind and positive with each other. If the first time someone brings bad news or offers a dissenting perspective on something, if you get angry, you know, even a little bit angry, it probably won't happen again. So you sort of have to say, wow, I didn't see that coming, but thank you so much. Make it rewarding. So you've got to make these potentially uncomfortable moments rewarding so that they keep happening. Very good insights and recommendations. And I guess, Amy, that it's easier also when everybody has, of course, a joint vision or a goal in front of them to also discuss things, nuances, learnings, and so on, even if it becomes personal, because we are all doing it because we jointly want to reach something. Right. I mean, I think the shared goal, the shared mission, that's another, maybe I should emphasize that too, as part of the stage setting, because what we're talking about here is hard. And why do people do hard things? You know, we're only willing to do hard things when we care enough about the goal, right? About achieving something. And especially when the issue is about achieving something with others that we couldn't do alone, which is both challenging, but also really rewarding. If I sense there's an opportunity here to do something with you that I couldn't do alone, then I'll roll up my sleeves and be willing to do the hard work. So soon you're coming out with a new book. What's the name of the book? And I'm just curious also, why did you write it? The book is called Right Kind of Wrong. The subtitle is The Science of Failing Well. I wrote it honestly, in part because an agent approached me and asked me to write a book about failure, to which I responded, but aren't there enough books about failure? And she said, no, the book I want you to write. And she had read some of my articles. Of course, my initial response also was, I've written articles. Isn't that enough? But apparently not. So, and of course, the beauty of a book is you have more length to put in real stories, the human stories that make it interesting to read and learn about something that's otherwise technical or academic in a sense. But the real reason I wrote it is that I think we live in a world where failures are inevitable, failures of all kinds, and people really struggle. They struggle because we all, to varying degrees, struggle with perfectionism or struggle with the desire. We all struggle with the desire to be thought well of by others. And we're under the illusion that if we do something wrong at any point, people will like us less or love us less. And that's, of course, terribly crippling to the goal of innovation and learning. Like I can't, I wouldn't be able to pick up a new sport or a new activity of any kind if I'm not willing to fail along the way. So part of the reason I wanted to write it was to help individuals in their lives struggle less with their fallibility, right? All of us, the last chapter is called Thriving as a Fallible Human Being. That's a fact that we are fallible human beings. Whether or not we can thrive is not a fact, right? That's something that we have to choose the right attitudes and the right behaviors. We have to be willing to stretch and try new things and go into new territory. So I wrote it because I think failure has remained a kind of 
A, a hot topic, the fail fast culture that Rainier mentioned, but B, for all of the happy talk, people are still struggling with it, right? They're still struggling with kind of irrational beliefs that they should be perfect, do everything well, even in new territory. I talk about the reason we don't navigate failure it's inevitability, it's bigger and smaller failures. The reason we don't navigate failure effectively boils down to aversion, confusion, and fear. And aversion is just that spontaneous emotional aversion, right? We don't like failure. I certainly don't mind failure associated with other people. I don't like it associated with me, right? It's just instinct. Confusion is most people are not very good at distinguishing between mistakes and beautiful scientific discoveries that came from a thoughtful experiment and you know other kinds of failures. So I describe three kinds of failures. And I think if you can really internalize the existence of three kinds of failures, it becomes much easier to have a thoughtful and less emotional reaction to them. And I'll describe those in just a moment. The third is what we've been talking about, which is the fear, the interpersonal fear, the social fear. Like I don't want to be seen failing. That's a very spontaneous desire to be seen in a positive light. So that's really about psychological safety, right? It's about creating communities where psychological safety is present so that we can have a rational, thoughtful relationship to the things that go wrong. Now the confusion part, which is the heart, well, half of the book is about untangling the confusion, which is the difference between basic complex and intelligent failures. The most important one to clarify is probably the intelligent. And the intelligent failure is one that happens in new territory. It's opportunity driven. We're trying something in new territory, so we're not sure what the outcome will be, but we really believe there's an opportunity there to make a difference, to learn, to innovate. You do your homework, right? This isn't just a matter of random action. It's hypothesis action. You are, whether in your personal life, you know, experimenting with a new friendship or at work, experimenting with a new technology, you're literally experimenting and you know you're experimenting. And then finally, an intelligent failure is as small as possible, right? You don't bet your whole fortune on something uncertain. It's not good practice, right? You don't bet your company's fortune on something uncertain. You try to figure out the scale that's just big enough to get the new information you need and no bigger. That's not always an exact science, but the premise there is, you know, opportunity-driven, new territory, hypothesis-driven, small as possible. That's an intelligent failure. And of course, bonus criterion is you learn from it. When you get that failure, you quickly do the debrief, the after-action review, and you figure out, okay, we were wrong. Why were we wrong? And you get interested in that problem so that you can immediately go on to the next experiment, if you will. Basic failures are the kind that are driven by a single cause, usually a mistake, but one mistake or one terrible thing goes wrong, or it doesn't have to be terrible, it can be small, unimportant, and get a failure. Complex failures are multi-causal. There's usually a mix of external factors, internal factors, sometimes human error, sometimes not. We colloquially call this the perfect storm. You know, if any one of those eight things hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had the breakdown. And those are unfortunately on the rise in an increasingly interdependent, uncertain environment. So I wrote the book because these concepts have become second nature to me. I think they're important primarily for our ability to emotionally navigate failure and its disappointments, and secondarily 
for companies and organizations to be able to have smarter failure strategies. But isn't there some kind of personality differences as well? You know, some people have more of a growth mindset and some have more of a fixed mindset, right? Yes, yes. And in fact, so the second half of the book, I talk about these as three competencies that you need for failing well. And the first one relates to your question. Let's talk about whether growth mindset is personality or not. It probably is, but it's certainly an individual difference. So the three competencies are self-awareness, which this growth mindset idea fits into, situation awareness, right, which is that kind of ability to size up a situation for its risk level, and system awareness, which is the ability to go beyond the immediate right here, right now, and me to the, okay, well, what about later and us to see that my little action right now might have unintended consequences. So I want to think that through before I act. But the growth mindset could not be more important. And in a way, that's a theme that runs through this whole discussion. The question is, and I think you're right, because I have two sons, and one of them definitely was born with more of a growth mindset than the other. But Carol Dweck would say, and does say, that it is learnable. And in fact, her research looks into teaching the growth mindset and seeing the impact that that can have on, say, children's performance in school. And the, the growth mindset, which, you know, quite simply is a belief that like the brain is a muscle, that the more I use it, the more I learn, the more I stretch, the more smart I am. And that is so um, helpful in navigating failure, right? Because if you have a growth mindset, you interpret a failure as literally as a learning opportunity, as a growing opportunity. If you have a fixed mindset where you believe your intelligence is fixed and something goes wrong, you are at risk of believing that meant you're not smart enough and you don't want anyone to know that, right? So you cover it up. Whereas the growth mindset says, great, that didn't work. How do we do better? And it's super important. And I think that's probably, I've often thought that psychological safety and growth mindset are partners. The individual growth mindset thrives in a psychologically safe environment and a psychologically safe environment helps people develop their growth mindset. Amy, is there anybody or any particular group of professionals out there that are expert in the science of failing well? Yes, yes. You know, in the book, I talk about elite failure practitioners. And I was sort of at first being very flippant or tongue in cheek with that term. And then I started to think, no, I like that term, right? What does it mean? Because it's almost oxymoronic, right? To be an elite failure practitioner. But of course, the first group that comes to mind are scientists, right? Are literal scientists, people who make their living as scientists, whether in a company or in a university setting. And these are people, especially in, you know, in basic science laboratories, say life sciences laboratories, they hypothesize for a living and they experiment for a living. So they're always in new territory or they wouldn't be able to publish their papers. And they're always experimenting and always, of course, they're human. They're always hoping they're right. But guess what? Depending on the field you're in, nearly all of them are going to be wrong more than half the time. And in some fields like biology, they'll be wrong 70% of the time, right? So these are people who wake up in the morning, go to work and fail 70% of the time, right? And you think, well, how do they get up in the morning? Because two reasons. One, the 30% are super exciting, right? They're in new territory. They've just had a discovery that may be important. And two, they understand, right? They understand that that's the name of the game. So they've trained themselves to, in a sense, treat the failures 
as the discoveries they actually are. You can't sort of say, oh, this is just as good as a success because you can't usually publish it. But you say, great, now I know that doesn't work. How do I quickly and smartly try the next thing that might, right? So they get good at that. Other, another group that are an elite failure practitioner are inventors, you know, people, whether in technology or, uh, you know, sort of household products, whatever, people who invent new things. They also get comfortable and okay with failing on the way to success. Elite athletes, right? Olympic level athletes never got to gold medal status without many, many failures. You fall off the balance beam a million times before you are that person who can go and do it perfectly in the competition celebrity chefs, or maybe not even just celebrity chefs, any chef worth her or his salt has tried recipes that didn't work. If they're at all willing to be on the edge of novelty. And then, of course, finally, product development folks in companies, right, the people who are developing the new products and services that will be the future, not current, but the future revenues are people who get good at navigating failure. I think we're good at, in some mind, and looking at sort of what are good practices that leads to successes and what should we do more of and we should do this and we did this with that company and that went well and, and this and that. But we don't keep a library of mistakes and we don't codify bad practices. Is that something we should do more of or just celebrate them? That's a great question. No, I don't think you need to celebrate bad practices. One of the wonderful people I interviewed for this book Jake Breeden, who was working in R&D at Takeda, now he's off on his own. But he says, you know, I kept trying to get people to celebrate failures. It just never worked. They'll go through the motions. Okay, Jake is telling us to do this, but really, you know, celebrate failures. So I started talking about, and this is again in the pharma sector, right? So lots of failures along the way behind closed doors. I started talking about celebrating pivots and that worked right? That was like a whole different mindset, right? So it will ring false to say we're really going to celebrate our mistakes and our bad practices. But if you say, okay, this had to happen to get us to the next step, then I think that's a more credible stance, right? So celebrate pivots. But I think you're bringing up something else that's really important, which is you do not want to hide the things that went wrong under the rug or out of sight or, you know, off in the closet where we'll never see them again, because you're always having new employees come in or people's memories fade or what have you. So you do want to prevent a basic failure when you have an intelligent failure the second time around, right? So you need to figure out systems for ensuring that we learn. And when I say we, I mean, we, right? Not I can learn from my mistakes, no problem. And or maybe nobody else saw it, so I don't have to say anything about it. But when we collectively have a library of knowledge that we share, we're so much better equipped to get things right more often. Because I don't think the goal is to be sloppy, obviously. The goal isn't to value all mistakes and failures equally. The goal is to truly value the intelligent ones. And again, they have to be in new territory. They have to be hypothesis-driven, opportunity-driven, and as small as possible. And make sure that we are able to document and remember the other ones so that we don't repeat them. I love it. We have a lot of pivoting uh, moments. Uh, so, uh, And we have actually celebrated some of them. But I love that. I'll take that into our practices. 
Amy, question really around sharing also failures with others. I don't mean just within the organization. For example, if Suma would share with other people, whether it's in the industry or elsewhere, you know, the transparency of sharing those so that everybody can learn. Do you see that? Yes and no. I mean, I would draw a distinction. I mean, I think Suma owns their own intellectual property, right? So they can choose whether and when something that they have learned through their own hard work and person hours, that's precious, right? That's valuable. So it may not want to stand out on the rooftops and share that with everybody else. I'm not against healthy competition, you know, between organizations, right? So long as it's not between individuals within the organization, I'm fine with it. But I would draw a line where if you learn something that has human health and safety implications, I think those need to be shared immediately. If clinicians in one hospital learn something about a procedure, they need to tell everybody and they, they do, uh, you know, immediately in the literature. Do it this way, not that way. Save lives. Similarly, in, say, the race to the vaccine, there was an enormous amount of sharing of what worked and what didn't because of what was at stake for everybody, you know, for the whole world's population. But do I think everybody and every company should be sharing all of their precious lessons with everybody? No. Some time ago, we also did a podcast with Roberto Verganti, and we were talking about the power of reframing. And it's a little bit interconnected here. And I was thinking also your role, for example, as a professor, as an advisor, as an expert, as a researcher, and all of that together. How are you reframing yourself over the years? You've been like passionate for like decades now around this subject about creating a better like workplace for people because it influences the quality of our lives and it influences our ability to contribute. But where are you now in this kind of reframing journey? You know, I think reframing is a really crucial skill in this domain that we're exploring today. And so it's related to the growth mindset. In fact, I think the people who have a strong growth mindset are master reframers. Right? So they're always able to reframe the disappointments that happen because we're always, as humans, going to be disappointed when something didn't go as well as we had wanted it to. But they reframe that into valuable input, right? They reframe it as a learning opportunity. As a researcher and a professor, one of the things I've had to do over the years is publish scientific papers. And every single time you submit a paper, I mean, sometimes it's just outright rejected. You have to reframe that because it's very disappointing and hurtful even. You reframe it as necessary information that will help you achieve your goal right, of getting a really high quality paper. If it's rejected outright, you know, it's very disappointing, but you learn that it wasn't good enough and you try to figure out how to make it better. Some portion of the time, it's not rejected, it's given what's called revise and resubmit. And you might get pages and pages of feedback, direct indeed, from anonymous reviewers who are telling you all the things that's wrong with it. And it's not fun, but you reframe it. I reframe it. I had to learn to reframe it as this person is essentially joining my team to help my work be better. And if you read my published papers, you have no idea. Like, you know, I should be more honest about this. Like how much those anonymous reviewers helped me make a much better, stronger argument, you know, more compelling data analyses, right? So I've seen many people drop out of the profession because they couldn't reframe the criticism as a gift as you know valuable information to make it better. So and I guess today, you know, after sort of 30 years in this business, 
how do I, including time as a PhD student, I mean, the overall reframe is from a spontaneous sort of, or maybe a learned perfectionism that is not helpful to a lifelong pursuit of a growth mindset that helps me reframe experience as necessary to adding value. There's just a quick example that I do use in the book is that there's research that says that after the Olympics, the bronze medalists are happier than the silver medalists, right? That makes no sense, right? Because they came in third, the silver medalists came in second. But the silver medalists spontaneously frame their award as having missed the gold, right? Oh, they came that close. They missed the gold and they're disappointed and less happy. Whereas the bronze spontaneously reframe it as they meddled, right? They so easily could have not been on the podium at all, right? They so easily could have been in fourth. They get that. So they're thrilled to have gotten a medal at the Olympics, right? And the silver medalists could learn to reframe, but they don't do it spontaneously, but they could, you could easily imagine they could learn to reframe. Great example. But then there is another kind of reframing we discussed with Roberto, which is more like, how can I, in the next decade or so, serve in what kind of role? I've been doing this and now I wish to reframe to something else. It doesn't mean just like a new profession or whatever, but right. to reframe the whole ground of why I'm doing things and how I can serve. Sort of a pivot if you think about it, right? So yes, okay. Yeah, and Roberto and I are at similar career stages. And actually, this is something that I think about a lot, that I understand intellectually, especially the need to pause and think about the future more carefully, because otherwise it just happens, right? Otherwise, you just keep doing what you do. And maybe it goes well, maybe it doesn't, but it's sort of more of the same rather than what does the world need from me? Don't want that to sound grandiose, but just in a small way, like what does the world, what does my community need from me? For example, one could shift from a doing science doing role to a leadership role where you're developing more others. I think in a funny way, this book, this new book, was a partial answer or partial attempt from me to respond to the question you're asking, which was because this is the first book that I wrote that isn't just for managers and coaches and consultants. It's for people in their lives, right? So there was a way in which people in the business world now talk about psychological safety a lot. You know, it's out there. It's had its impact. And some of the other things I've done on teams and teaming, but these aren't household words, right? You know, it's not like that's affecting people in their lives where it matters and where some of the sort of emotional pain of failure can be lessened, right? So this was an attempt, you know, in response to this wonderful person who approached me, an attempt to say, yeah, I guess I could speak to, I don't know necessarily larger, but a different audience and include people at work and in their lives. I want to hear what Roberto said, so I'll have to tune in to that one. <laughs> what is preventing me from reframing and pivoting one more time, right? Because you sort of now really dragged into the success and the growth and the building. So uh, I'm more concerned about sort of what is preventing me from reframing just because the momentum and the success is so strong. I think you're not done yet. There's still so much work to do in the investing in the sustainability sector. Right? It's not a mature domain yet, so I wouldn't pivot yet. Good. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> if it gets to the point where your work is done, we are in very good shape indeed. 
well then Rainier then that's resolved just continue to lean in right right okay but Amy just as a final question before we go into more of a helicopter perspective what would you say is like the top leadership challenge uh, this year I think it's humility that's the first thing that comes to mind from a leadership perspective and humility about what lies ahead humility about easy answers, you know, avoiding easy answers, and a sort of a willingness to not know so that you can engage others in the tremendous learning and problem-solving journey that lies ahead. So if we go into this helicopter perspective for a moment, what would you say that the world needs most right now? The world needs us to rise to the occasion. We are on one beautiful planet that my former mentor called Spaceship Earth. Right? And you would never be on a ship in the ocean where the port side is trying to sink the starboard side. right? That would be crazy. And yet that's sort of what we do. That's what we're doing. That's what politics is doing in the US, many other countries as well. right? We're so busy fighting with each other that we aren't doing our real job, which is to work together to take care of ourselves and our future selves and our habitat. I mean, if I could wish for one thing, Amy, I would wish sitting here in Scandinavia, bordering Russia, I would really like Putin to have a team around him with high psychological safety. I think maybe he would have been able to avoid some mistakes and some failures and we wouldn't be at the bad place we are. I agree. I, I mean, when we all see those images of him on that long table and so clearly both physically and cognitively cut off from valid feedback from others, it's painful to contemplate. The waste and the suffering that one man's cut offness has created is staggering. What would be your advice to young people? you know, when they make choices to design their life work. I mean, you have also two kids that are like in the 20s and uh, all three of us have actually. Never choose a job when you're young for its pay. Choose it for its learning potential. Your value and your ability, and by value, I mean your ability to make a difference and of course do well in your own life is 100% connected to how much you learn in your 20s and beyond, right? So keep picking opportunities for their learning potential I've seen way too many young people pick job A over job B because of some small income gap between those that will pale in comparison to the value that they might have the potential to create if they choose learning. Choose learning over money in the near term and keep learning, right? Team up with people who are different from you to understand things more fully, more broadly, and give yourself a chance to have more of a helicopter perspective. Amy, do you think society in general, especially among the young generation, because of social media, have more fear of failure than our generation growing up? Because you only see successes on social media, right? I think it's a very real concern. I think social media leaves us at risk of being even more allergic to failure than we were before, which is saying a lot, and more crippled by it emotionally because, as you say, we see everyone else looking perfect, sharing only moments of success or extraordinary vacations or what have you, right? So we are at risk of thinking everyone else's lives are going perfectly and ours are the only ones that aren't. It's wrong. It's an error. And so, yes, I think it's a risk factor. And then the question is, we're not going to make it go away. So how do we navigate it, right? How do we help people see that that's kind of a lie, if you will, or a misunderstanding of reality? 
Amy, what would you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode? We know you're fallible. We're all fallible. And it is literally possible to thrive as a fallible human being. And it takes some skills and some science to do it well. I agree with that. I think if I look through sort of my journey and obviously ended up now in a fairly successful place, but it has been daring to try. I have never been afraid of failure. I remember, you know, applying for Harvard, Amy, I thought I never would get in. So I was surprised getting in, but at least I tried. You know, I thought I would be kicked out, but I wasn't. So I'm worried about the young generation now seeing, you know, they want to be successful at every stage. I was never successful at every stage. I've done so many mistakes, got egg on my face, been laughed at. So it's, I think those mistakes and just standing up again, trying and dare to try. It can go wrong, it can go right. I think if I hadn't gone through that path, I wouldn't have ended up where I am. Completely agree. I would say the only mistake, Bucky Fuller said this too, the only mistake is not trying. Right? The only mistake is being so afraid of making mistakes that you don't stretch. And then you steal from yourself that opportunity to grow and learn and do things you never thought were possible in your life. And that has absolutely been true for me too. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, you get this humble attitude, which helps you in life as well to understand others and to be curious around others and not know it all yourself. And all of that is a bonus in addition. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Rainier, for a wonderful conversation, a really valuable one. Thank you. Thank you. It's great being with you. I can't wait to see you again. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.